the optimal life. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just started the recording. Yeah. Okay. So Wouldn't said, it be you nice? Said one, in, one in every four. That yeah, they're they're saying that one in every four people in 2023 experiences a an emotional or mental wellness crisis. Wouldn't it be nice to have more people be human who understood what that person was going through? Yes. Rather than just teaching people to go hands on because they're not complying or because you got called a certain word and you have thin skin working as a frontline responder. And, you know, I think we need to look at the bigger picture and how it affects humanity. I know it sounds very corny, but like anybody who really knows me knows I'm very much, we are the world from like 1985, man. Yes. You know, that's, that's like my thing, you know, so. It's a great song. Got to go listen yeah. to that. I haven't heard that one in a while. I got the DVD with all the <laughs> background, all we the, are the all outtakes and stuff, man. Yeah, yeah. So let's start there. Uh, let's assume that there's a black police officer and he's dealing with some racist skinhead type person or someone that's just a nasty person. Mm-hmm. And that person does use a, a nasty word towards that officer. They use the N word. Okay. Okay. What, what would you What would you say? How do you help an officer in that situation keep his cool? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I've been that officer. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I used to be a police officer. I've been called everything in the book. I've been hit on by uh, gay racists, <laughs> which is really weird. Um, You've been hit on by a gay racist? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had a, there was a guy that had a warranty, a warrant out. And, um, you know, if we encounter you and you have a you have a warrant out, we're obligated to take you in. And the entire time that he's in the back of my squad car, I was the N-word, but I was this beautiful man. And when he got out, he wants me to wait on him. It was it was a weird dynamic, man. And it was more comical than anything else, because I don't I'm not I'm not thin skinned. You know, I went through a lot of stuff in my life. I've overcome a lot and I don't I try not to take a lot of stuff personally. That stuff doesn't bother me, man, because, I, you know, sometimes you look at. When people give out, when people try to hurt other people, those people are hurt. So I try to look at what that person is carrying. Is like, this ain't got nothing to do with me. Mm. Sometimes it's just best to laugh it off, shut up. You know, like I said, I've been called worse by better. I've, I mean, if you're going to take the, take it there with the N-word, get a little more creative, man. You know? You know, to that's go back too, to that's too that, that's that's too uh, standard. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. You got to get creative because I'm, I'm a big fan of comedy, man. So mm. You got to get creative, brother, you know? Right. So, okay. So yourself, you have the emotional intelligence and the wherewithal to be able to compartmentalize and realize, hey, okay, this guy is just a nut job. Uh, this goes back to probably his childhood. He knows no different. Whatever, wherever his anger stems from. This right. isn't personal towards me. Right. Okay. But there's a lot of police officers that are not necessarily like Sean Garcia. So how about those guys? What would you say to those guys? How how do they where do they take their mind when they potentially can get triggered and do something that they shouldn't do to retaliate? What do, what kind of tips do you have for those guys? You know what? So what sets me apart in what I do than other people is I don't focus on tactical. I focus on the initial contact. I focus on validating emotions. But even before that, wouldn't it be nice for the person that's there to help solve the crisis to be healed themselves? What if they're emotionally healthy? You can't you can't really expect to help somebody else 
if if you're not healed yourself, that doesn't make sense. Because, you know, what's the saying? Hurt people hurt other people. Mm. So if you're in a position and you're trying to help someone, but you haven't done the work yourself and you get triggered and you don't know how to handle it, it can end really, really bad. Either, I mean, on a lighter note, just you have to, you go hands on unnecessarily because you got triggered, because you felt they didn't comply, but you weren't able to identify um, the signs of emotional distress. You get what I'm saying? And when you say hands on, you're saying putting your hands on somebody. Right. Unnecessarily. Right. Or or right. too aggressive. Right. In a manner that you shouldn't. Because even though this person's disrespecting you, there's still protocol. You're still the police officer. You're still got to be the, the authority figure. You're the bigger person. Right. And especially if this person's in cuffs and you're roughing this person up, that could lead to a problem for yourself. So, again, right. these guys, this police in this example, because this happens across our country every day, unfortunately. Right. When a black police officer encounters that person, I mean, what are there some tips and techniques in his mind that he can say, OK, how do I separate this so that I don't get triggered? That emotional and maturity is what. You know, it's what counts. What kind I of skills? What kind? What kind of exercises should these guys? Any any police officer, for example, be doing they, on a daily basis so that when they encounter these situations, they are in a good place emotionally. The first thing is safety. I, I never ask anybody whether it's um, whether it's an EMT, a nurse, a doctor, police officer, any frontline responder. I've never asked them to don't ever compromise your safety, safety and distance. Uh, reaction time, things like that. But also just listen to what the person is saying outside of the insults, the the uh, the bad verbiage was there. There's something deeper there. Listen to what they talk. And, you know, while they're rambling and they say, oh, wait a minute, you in your head. Oh, wait a minute. They mentioned something about their brother or sister. Hey, who's been do you live with someone open ended questions? Hey, do you live with someone? Oh, they're your caretaker. Oh, you guys fell out. Do you think they will come help you now? Things like that. Mm. So because the thing is, you got to remember to be a frontline responder is kind of like almost almost like being a politician, but you're not a public figure. You're not voting in. Um, That's supposed to represent the best of society. It's supposed to be, okay. this person has the fortitude to care about everybody and uphold our Constitution. I'm not going to go all political. I don't want to get into that. I want to make this a very human and human thing because that's what we are at the at the end of the day. You have to have the emotional fortitude to say, okay, I don't understand everything, but I'm here to help everyone. Mm. If that makes sense. So open-ended questions. Absolutely. Open-ended questions are key. But for an officer too, Sean, as you mentioned, you 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 have to be emotionally healthy within yourself and your own personal life. That's, it helps. It absolutely helps. Because if you're bringing baggage, we all bring baggage to work. Unfortunately, a first responder or an officer brings baggage and then they have no clue what kind of fire they're stepping into on a daily basis. No, we don't. If you're an engineer, if you're an architect, if you're any, almost any profession in the world, unless you're dealing with human lives in real time, Right. You know pretty much what to expect. You don't have to worry about, hey, is my life potentially in danger today? My boss is not going to be using curse words at me. My boss is not going to be be a threat to my life 
Whereas a first responder has those threats and they have their own personal life stuff that they have to deal with. So are there things that these first responders should be doing in their own personal time, Sean? Absolutely. I I believe very much in self-care. I believe very much in taking a mental health day when necessary. I I'll share I, I like to share part of my story. Um, I got to get a better camera. It look like I'm underwater, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's okay. This will be audio only for the most part. So that's okay. Um, so um, my thing is, I'll share. I'll share some really personal about me. I ended up becoming a police officer while going through a divorce. I went through the academy while going through a divorce. At the same time, my father was declining and he would eventually pass away. So I was like, so when I went through the academy, not only was I the only man of color, you know, as far as uh, as far as uh, black men, I was the oldest person in there. I was uh, 46, man. Yeah. And I'm dealing with all this stuff and. I don't know how I made it through. I really, I really don't, man. My my mindset was all over the place. You know, it was very, it was extremely difficult. And then I was a rookie. And then I was a rookie dealing with all of this, dealing with the divorce and trying to, you know, make sure my children were taken care of. And and I really I had never been through anything like that before. So I didn't do that great of a job taking care of myself. Do you get what I'm saying? And honestly, a lot of times that manifests in different ways for different people, depending on your personality. Some people end up drinking too much. Some people sleep with everybody they can. You could do all this stuff, but at the end of the day, you have to go through it in order to heal. You can't mask it. So a lot of times when you're dealing with that stuff, all you're doing is prolonging your healing. You get what I'm saying? Well, as a divorced man myself, I 100% understand yeah. what you're saying. And the hardest thing for me when I was going through my divorce was the fir- the year of firsts. The year of firsts with when I wouldn't have my daughters on their birthday or when I wasn't with them for a holiday or pick whatever, whatever it was when they were with their mom instead of me. The year of firsts were really brutal. It is. That's a tough year, man, because you feel like, you know, you feel like people choose one or the other in divorce. People you thought were your friends aren't your friends. You feel like you're judged everywhere. It's, it's a it's a horrible thing at any age. I got married at 33. I never dreamt that I'd be going through divorce at almost 47. You know what I mean? Sure. So it could be tough, but you'll you gotta. I think the more males, the more men speak on it, the better it is. And they say, okay, I feel like this, but he went through this and he made it through. I can lean on him and I and I have a really good support system around me, but it still hurt. Yes, <laughs> you know? of course it does. Of course it does. Your life's being ripped out from underneath you. How, how old were your kids when you were going through that? Oh, shoot, man. Uh, so let's see. So Braden is 12. So they were they were really little. They were like five and eight. Yeah. Yeah, That's similar for me. Similar for me. You know, Absolutely. Two boys. Um, yeah, that that was, tough. that was tough. But that self-care thing. That's what so so let me let me uh let me back up a little bit. So I got into uh CIT crisis intervention training because I took a class as a rookie officer. 
and I love the class. I fell in love with it. I love role play. I come from an entertainment background. My dad was a musician. I've done acting and all this stuff in life, singing and dancing and all this stuff, you know. Um, but um, the role play was right up my my alley, and I, I leaned into it, and it was my escapism. And the guy that really got me into it, um, he liked what I had to offer, said, hey, would you like to be a coach? And I was like, heck, yeah. And then he said, yeah, you can make some extra money. And I was like, even more, heck yeah, <laughs> you know? Um, and at the time, you know, I got certified as a coach, but my dad wasn't doing well. Um, and I had to put that on hold for the next couple of years. And then when I revisited it, I really dove into coaching and I got in, got into um, working as an actor in scenario role plays with frontline responders, which was so much fun. Mm. And I got validation that I had something a little different than other people based off of the people I was working with. Um, I don't know if it's my emotional tone. I don't know if it was my, the environment I created a safe space. Cause a lot of people, I've had a couple of people like get triggered and break down and it's not my intention to do that. But I always remind people, no matter what you do, it's okay to to feel and be human because you are. You are, you know. So would you have gone to the police academy to become an officer had you not been going through a divorce? You know what? No one's ever asked me that before. I don't think so. I don't think so. I was given an opportunity and I was close with a couple of people in my department, you know, and I've never been very stoic. Like you go through something. I don't wear it very well. I don't pretend to be like our grandfathers and you, you know, you drink it away. I, I'm not, I'm not that guy, man. I feel, I cry. I see, I think, I think every woman I've ever been in a relationship with has seen me cry, <laughs> you know, because I'm a human being. So that's a great question. No, man, I, um, I don't, I don't think I I ever would have took this path without the divorce. Right. You know? Yeah. Because co quite often what I realize that we do in life, especially when we have a mission, which go, which will get us to what you're doing with the crisis intervention, it so often stems from things that we've gone through ourselves and we want to have an impact in that area. It's no different with, with me with this podcast. I, I really like learning about how people overcome uh, different things and, uh, and, how they're able to handle and be resilient through through so many different adversities. Right. And that really caused me because uh, from a mental health, emotional intelligence, personal development standpoint, right. selfishly, I do, like I told you before we started recording, that's where I do this podcast because I get so much value out of it, yeah. learning from people like yourself. So that was the impetus for me to get this started. And then I looked at your coaching and I'm saying, what was it in Sean's life? What was what was the crisis that Sean was going through for him to want to get involved in this crisis intervention field? That that was that was a major turning point. That's a great question. But I'll I'll go back even further and I think you'll appreciate this. So um there was something I was in film school. I was like 39 years old. And I was in film school and, and my oldest son at the time, Sean Michael, was one. And I remember I picked him up from daycare. This was the last day of that first semester. It was in May. And I had our dog at the time in the backseat. And I had Shawn Michael. He was in his carrier, you know. And I was in a car accident. 15-year-old girl 
just got her license pulled right out in front of me. Bam. Mm. And that set off a chain of events that led me to where I am now. So I ended up going to like, I ended up going to um, a chiropractor. Chiropractor told me, hey, then this is like the Cliff Notes version. Hey, you're uh, you're carrying a lot of stuff emotionally. He said, you know, he said, you're you're really in these areas. You know how they do all that stuff. He said, honestly, have you thought about seeing a therapist? And the kind of person that I am, I'm open to almost anything. I said, no, I haven't. He said, you may want to consider seeing a therapist. This was back in 2010. This is in 2010. I found a therapist and I, I, I had been seeing him on and off for the next 13 years until this year when he retired. And it was one of the best things I ever done for myself. I had so many things care. I was carrying so many things that I didn't know about, you know, unresolved daddy issues that I didn't know I had. I learned things about myself in relationships and why my relationships weren't working. You learn to not carry anger when things go wrong, because sometimes when things don't go, don't go right, uh, when things don't go right, sometimes it just don't work out and it's okay. Everything's not for everybody. It's not personal. It's kind of like dating or when you interview for jobs, sometimes it just don't work out, you know? Right. But there's a whole world out there. You can't compartmentalize yourself into this one failure. So, yeah, so. Unresolved daddy issues. Dig into that one for us. But what did you learn? I and I didn't. So I didn't. I didn't. Uh, wow, this is a deep one, dude. You you you're good. Um. So my dad was very. He was a Detroit musician. Very strong personality. Very commanding. He was a lot of fun, but what he said went. He didn't take any shit. Um. I learned that as as we all do when we become parents, you know, I grew up, me and my parents basically grew up together, man. I was born eight days before my mom turned 19. My dad was 22. We all grew up together. So imagine in 1971, 72 in Detroit, you know, I remember being on a bus in his arms and he's got his bass and amp in one and then and he's got me over here. And I remember going to bars drinking orange pop while he's rehearsing you know you you do you don't realize that, that nobody has this figured out as a kid you look up to your parents and you say okay i trust you to protect me and they absolutely did that but what i didn't know till i got married and until i became a parent myself is you ain't never got it figured out man and you're you're making a decision and you're hoping that that's the best decision at that time and I learned to give grace. I learned to give grace because just the fact that he was there, a lot of parents, moms and dads aren't there. Both of my parents were there. So while there may have been some kind of, you don't need to get into all the details, but what, there may have been some kind of abuse or maybe emotional abuse or physical or, or psychological because they, they're trying to keep their head above water. They're yeah. trying, they're trying their they're trying their hardest in that moment. Right. Sometimes right. them trying their hardest comes out in, in, a, in a nasty way for uh, for the children. Well, it could. And you don't know the personality of how the kid is going to receive it. You know what I mean? 
Right. Um, they were never like my parents were great, man. Like they were married, they were together for almost 50 years. So like you got, you know, I'm like the age I am now. Really, all I know is okay, let's work this out and move forward. I've seen them argue, I've seen them fight. I've seen them, I've seen them, but one thing I always saw, and I tell everybody this, I always saw them make up. Mm. I've seen my father walk up to my mother and say, hey, I'm really sorry. I've seen my mother say, baby, I love you. We're going to get through this. And that don't mean you agree, but that just means, hey, we got to keep this ship going because we got these boys. Wow. And That's people huge. don't do that anymore. That's people huge. Don't do that anymore. So like, yeah. so, you, so you can imagine that like dating for me is like tough because there are certain things that I look for with my newfound boundaries discovered in the last several years. Yes, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. But the, the so. fact that you able were saw you saw forgiveness in the household, no matter how nasty things got. You right. saw forgiveness, you heard I love you. You yeah. you 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 witnessed reconciliation. There's a lot of people that never see that. All they see is the fight and then it gets swept under the rug. The fight right. and then swept under the rug. There's never any accountability. Is it right? No. That nobody ever raises their hand, not nobody. A lot of people don't raise their hand and say that this one was on me. I'm sorry. Yeah. All they see, they, a lot of people grow up seeing reconciliation by it just going away until yep. the next fight. So that and was huge. Like, that was huge for your emotional intelligence development. Yeah, um, it was. It made me want. It made me look at my dad as my superhero. He was my first superhero, and it made me want to find a woman like my mother. Mm. So, so, and I'm thinking everything. I'm thinking like growing up, like in middle school and high school and you're going through puberty and you're weird and you're trying to figure things out. You're thinking everybody's got the same household as, as you. Nah, mm, <laughs> nah, so dog. True. nah, so dog. True. <laughs> you, you mentioned daddy issues. So tell us a little bit about your mom. Oh, my mom's wonderful, man. Yeah. She's wonderful. She, 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 uh, like, right. I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. So after my dad passed away, she's out here with me. I'm in Cali I'm in Colorado. Um, and she's one of my best friends. And I learned so much, even now, with us being friends. I see her every week. We speak almost every day in some capacity, text or talk. And I learned so much about what they kept from my brother and I growing up. That's how good of parents they were. Because I don't believe children should know grown folks' problems to a degree. Some things you can't hide. Like on uh, Pursuit of Happiness, you know, they lost a house. Okay, you can't really hide that. Right. But if you're struggling financially, the kids really don't need to know that. If they're not missing any meals, there's a certain age where you start teaching financial literacy if you know it yourself. You know what I mean? As an example. Absolutely. Well, I got to tell you what. Uh, the mom, mama bear over there. She's going to be tough to please you if you got to be a, a the right woman coming into that that circle now. Because I know that you guys have gone through a lot and you guys yeah. are tight knit. You're living together. Maybe, maybe you take her to the uh, go see Deion Sanders and the boys now that you're out there, huh? <laughs> maybe. Well, we don't live together. She has her own place. Right. No, I understand. Yeah, yeah, but we we're we're in contact. Um, I mean, she does want me to date. I'm just. I, I, I'm in a place right now where I realize I have options and emotional maturity and, and conflict resolution skills are a big thing for me. I don't care how pretty you are. I don't care how much money you make. In fact, I've never cared what job a woman has had. 
do you have the fortitude to make me feel like a stronger man when I leave you and say, damn, she makes me want to conquer the world. Mm. So a lot of this is in my book. I wrote a book. It's called It's Not About You. And and as I was writing the book, um, it was primarily to talk about de-escalation and crisis communication skills, crisis intervention skills, right? But the more I dove into it, the more it became more of a kind of like a slight memoir. And I started looking at all these lessons I learned that's in each of these chapters. And I'm like, holy cow, I didn't see this coming. So I'm letting it flow. And the book is it's just about done. It's not out yet. But it's it's become a passion project because I'm a really good writer. That's my first love. I'm a ferocious reader and listener of audiobooks. So like this has been a long time coming. That's beautiful. I look forward to seeing that. It, it, this probably it won't be out by the time we release this episode. So you, anyone that's listening, you, you you cannot get the book yet. But once the book is out, Sean, we will then go back into the episode notes. We'll link it up so that people can find it at some point and, and direct it right through the episode. Absolutely. Um, and it's called It's Not About You. You talk about the crisis uh, intervention. So I want to talk a little bit about some of this stuff just to hear Again, more techniques and those kind of things. Absolutely. Um, so let's assume that you're dealing with a suicidal person. And I'm sure that you've encountered this in your career and you know people that have. And they're in a they're 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 on the bridge. They're literally they're on the bridge saying, I'm doing it. I'm jumping. And you show up. Take us through the steps that a first responder needs to employ in order to give them the best chance so that that person doesn't jump? Well, uh, let me say right off the top, I am not a licensed therapist. I'm not a licensed mental health professional. I'm just a guy that learned all these lessons, and I want to share all of this with the world. So let me just put that out there. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm just a human that cares about other human beings, okay? One of the first things you do is listen to what they're saying. Do you have a dialogue with them? You know, you don't you don't want this guy to go um, jump in front of you and it ends really badly. Um, but there are certain things you if if you're not connecting with that individual, let somebody else step in. That's a tapping out feature. You know, um, sometimes you have to recognize when. Okay, they may not necessarily connect with you, but they may have a commonality with someone who's standing by a person. You may hear somebody say, oh, I I went through that, you know, say, hey, would you mind talking to them? And if they're listening, because the thing is, you got to remember, it's kind of like when you when you contact somebody, as long as they're talking. They're not going to just do something drastic, because really, generally. On a humane level, we want to be heard. We're in a crisis. We want to be heard. Is that hey, what's nobody... going on? Is that what's going on, Sean? When someone's in that state where they feel like this is it, is it? Is it oftentimes I am I'm at my wit's end because I don't feel heard in my life and I haven't felt heard in years? It's very possible. It's very possible. I'm not saying that's it every time. And I'm not even saying that's like the absolute right thing. But you'll be hard pressed to find people in crisis they're not there because everything's well, if if that makes sense. I, I agree. I, I think that there's something to it, though. I do believe that there's something to it because 
you do often see somebody that is in this example and they ultimately take a step off the bridge and then they grab the person's hand and they decide not to do it. They walk away with the first responder and they get mm-hmm. them safe into a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've heard, you've heard people say also uh, that, you know, they say, well, if the person was really going to do it, they would have done it. This is oh, a that's what I help, mean. A so drastic they, cry for help. That's they, what they, they say. They really are, they're crying out for help. They need to be heard. They probably haven't felt there's something inside of that. Why did they walk to the bridge in the first place? Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Why did, did they walk there in the first place? Had they been heard, they probably wouldn't be standing on that bridge. But this person's crying out for how this person doesn't want to do it. I mean, most of the time, I assume you're going to see people that still do it because they're they're close. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, if they wanted to do it, they'd walk up to the bridge, jump and not say a word to anybody. That'd be the end of it. The fact that they're still standing there causing a scene, doesn't that give you hope that, hey, this person doesn't really want to do this? Absolutely. I'll give you I'll give you an, another example. I've encountered um, the, the transient population, the homeless population in Denver has grown tremendously in the last six or seven years. Unbelievably. Uh, when I moved out to Denver uh, 21 years ago. You didn't see um, homeless people on a corner here in the suburbs where I live. You know what I mean? And now it's everywhere. Um, One of the things when I was a patrol officer was you get the call that there's a suspicious man making somebody uncomfortable. And I get that. So we show up and that's all you're given. And now you as the making the contact with the individual, whether you're in private security or as a patrol officer or whatever, you got to watch, look at these signs and say, okay, well, what's going on here? Is this person safe? Do they want to harm themselves? Do they want to harm me? Do they want to harm the environment? If they're listening to you and they're talking back to you, that's a good thing. It's not about, you, you get what I'm saying? It's not about political affiliation, it ain't about whether you believe in God or God or worship cabbage or this is one human talking to another. Yeah. And you, you come in, you come in low, you come in with a, a soothing tone. And you be genuine. You be your authentic self. I've had officers tell me, well, I'm not like that. I say, well, you can still be human and be who you are. Because people can sense when you're not being honest, when you're not being genuine. That's right. So you want to be genuine. I, I want to dig into an example. Uh, this The bridge example comes to mind. But let's let's talk about the let's let's go even a little deeper. But I'd, I'd like to hear from you. On, on exactly what you would do in this situation or what you would recommend. Cause this is, this is through your company. We've linked you here in the show notes, um, Astro chemistry consulting LLC. This is what you guys do. Consulting services on de-escalation and crisis communication. You have a hostage situation. The absolute worst thing that you could find yourself in uh, an innocent person is at the mercy of some psychopath who wants to take potentially take their life. And now you've been called in to de- de-escalate and try to keep everyone alive. What would you do, Sean? Where do you start with that with that distressed person? Well, I wouldn't be called to that, but we teach officers how to go into those situations and be humane while solving that problem. That's what that's about. How do you be humane? What do you what kind of things do they say to the to the potential perpetrator? What do they what do they do? Well, it depends on the training that they received. Um, like I said, I'm not a I'm not trained. I took a couple of classes as an officer to do that, but I teach, I teach people 
how to go into a crisis intervention. I, I teach people how to go into a crisis and listen, be humane, maintain safety, and validate emotion. Those three or four things right there make a huge difference. Say just because they're on 10 doesn't mean you have to come in on 10. I learned that. You come in on three. And if you're talking to them and you connect with them, you stay You stay there and you take advantage of that, open-ended questions. You, you understand what I'm saying? Open-ended so really questions. Speak. I don't what, think what's an example? To... What's an example of, a, of one or two questions that are that you should always ask in these situations? Um, you can ask their name, but you don't have to make it about give me your name, give me your name. It's not about rapid fire questions. Maybe they don't feel comfortable enough with you to give their name. And if they give you a name, you may not like the name they gave you, but maybe that's their street name. Hey, my name's Potato Chip. You know, mm. and if that's what they give you, you use that to connect with them. But what's, hey man, what's going on today? What happened? How did we get here? What can I do for you? That's a big one. What's causing? What's causing you? I mean, is it? Is it? Does it make sense to start off by just coming out and saying, "Hey, what, what's what's wrong? What's causing you to this distress?" But you got to build rapport. Building rapport is extremely important, or else they're never going to trust you. And they're going to be like, "They're going to be like, get the fuck away from me, man! I don't know you." Okay, so, I've seen that. So, so what are some things that you do to build rapport then? Take your time. Uh, one of the biggest things that I that I've learned and that I teach is if it takes a little longer for a safer outcome, so be it. Even, Every, if, it means, even if it means the 24 hours straight, right? Because there are those situations. There are. There are. But that's that doesn't happen that often. You know, it could I'm, be going to, I'm going to an extreme. I understand you are, I'm going yes. to an extreme. It could be it could be 20 minutes, it could be two hours, it can be four hours. Which is a long you know. time. That feels that feels like an eternity when you're trying to talk someone off the ledge, whether it's for their own life or for somebody else's life. Exactly. Exactly. So you're saying in those situations too, create trust, create likability. You're doing this by asking open questions. Open-ended questions. Open-ended questions by being listening, listening, being empathetic, right? Kind of saying, hey, man, I know where you're at. I've been there before. Yeah, and what's crazy is that, like, uh, when I started uh, doing more work as a CIT coach, um, and I'm in in these scenarios coaching these officers, I didn't realize how many of them had personal connections to these scenarios I was throwing them in, and it triggered them. Whether they were on the other side and they felt like taking their own lives or they had an uncle that did it in front of them or you don't know what you're going to get because we're all carrying something. You get what I'm saying? Um, So I try to I try to I always try to coach with regard and respect to that. Because, again, like the book says, it's not about you. And do you have the emotional maturity to step out of there and say, okay, you know, you don't drop the 48th end bomb on me. Some people snap me. I'm like, that's all you got. Hey, hey, let's get you. Let's get you to where you need to be. You're in distress. Let's just be human. Let let me let me help you. Well, at least the guy that thought you were attractive as he was throwing insults at you with the N word. That so, was that there was you a go. Trip, there's man. always there's always a unique situation out there. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, fascinating stuff. I mean, it's fascinating stuff that you've done. 
what you're doing with the practice. Cause there's a lot of people these days, Sean, I feel like that are uh, really struggling. Yes. I mean, struggling at an all time high. I don't know if it was post pandemic, the pandemic hangover. I don't know if it's this social media that's screwing people up. Uh, just a whole host of things. It feels like people are, are in distress. So I think the work that you're doing is, uh, is, is really incredible and it's much needed. It's much needed. Um, talk to us. Where can people find you? We've mentioned the website. Where else? Social media, anywhere else online. Oh, I have, uh, I'm on Instagram. You can find me under, um, ACTC 11 underscore consulting on Instagram. I'm on, uh, X formerly known as Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, <laughs> I'm not on Facebook. Um, I'm, and who, and who um, are you working? Who are the type of people that you're actually working with personally? Generally, I've been working, doing a lot of work with law enforcement agencies. Um, I've done some work with uh, utility uh, collectives as far as uh, teaching uh, customer service people de-escalation skills over the phone, mm. you know, which is which is different because you're not they're not face to face. And then a lot of them you know, receive calls and they're getting yelled at for one reason or another. So that's, I consider that part of that healthcare workers, uh, nurse. I think sometimes uh, nurses tend, well, not even just nurses, but I think in healthcare, people get burned out and they forget why they got into that in the first place. You know, yes, that's so uh, everybody, every patient isn't going to act the way you think they should act. As evidence, uh, like you said, uh, by, by my recent episode with the nurse burnout. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that was a great episode, man. And I, that's the one I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to talk with this guy because you were, you were great in having that dialogue and listening to her. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, so you're really working with a whole host of, of organizations, groups of people, people that yeah. are really first responders or dealing with human lives. Yeah. Uh, these are the type of people that you're working with and passing on this crisis management and de-escalation. Right. Uh, teachers also like a big thing is academia. Um, how many videos have we seen of students doing whatever they want and teachers, you know, run out of the room because they're like, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. Correct. No. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm here to be a, an educator. And then all of a sudden you realize you have to be a parent, a friend, a, a mentor, a psychologist, all these other things that come with that at times. Right. And that's and it's evolved. And these they these guys aren't really given the tools or the paid compensated to do their job. Mm. Um, I've noticed a trend, particularly in healthcare, where I, I, I recently was in a workplace workplace violence prevention class. And it was a three day class. And I'll never forget this, man. Um, they focused on de-escalation and crisis intervention communication for like a day, maybe a half day. And then the next two days were all tactical. That was expected that they're, we're expected to teach nurses and doctors. And I'm like, they're not going to, what you, you get what I'm saying? I don't know a lot of nurses and doctors that are going to say, Hey, okay. You know, if they do one more thing, I'm gonna go tactical. But <laughs> if you give them the, the tools to, um, communicating effectively with agitated patients, you may not have to do that. Right. You know, and that's, I stand by that. I absolutely stand by that. That's perfectly um, said. That's perfect. But they say uh, violence isn't the answer. 
generally. Well, <laughs> violence isn't the answer, and this is the perfect segue to finish it off. Sean, why don't you uh, finish us off here? Let's with uh, with a little with a little music, okay? Okay. <laughs> isn't this where we started? You got this on your on your uh, recording, right? I, I can't hear it. You can't hear it. No. I see it. I got to get the T-shirt though. We are the ones to make a yeah, brighter man. day. Let's and people, worry. yeah, and people hey. think it's corny, man. But I'm gonna <laughs> tell you something. I'm, I want to say one more thing. Go ahead. Uh, people like to make fun of like Taylor Swift and Beyonce, but I would never down talk people like that that are able to bring everybody together, mm. even if it's for a few hours. Look at the powerful magnitude that that brings on a global level. Remember That's... when Michael did it? Remember Michael did it? He yeah. ran the world for like five years, dude, just bringing people together. You haven't seen that in a long time. That's all we want to do, man. Everybody just wants to be heard. Everybody wants to be validated. Everybody wants to be respected. Yeah, it, it doesn't It doesn't matter if you're a Chiefs fan or a Broncos fan. When you're at a Taylor Swift concert, Everyone's a Taylor fan and, and a fan of happiness, joy, and love. So that's that's perfect way to end it. Yes. And uh, wishing you continued success, my friend. Great connecting with you. Thank you, brother. I'll send you a copy of the book when it's done, okay? That'll be great.